people are afraid of a lot of different things. And some people have phobias where they're scared of heights. I knew a girl in college, I'm not making this up, who said that she was deathly afraid of cotton. So there she was afraid of, I've, I've heard people snakes and all kinds of things, but she said she was afraid of cotton, which seems very strange to me. And she was an otherwise very normal, classy girl, but she said that she was afraid of cotton. So I, I didn't believe this was, this was possible. And she said, just, yeah, anything, that cotton, I'm afraid of it. So I thought, well, I'm, I'm going to test this out. So I'm like, she can't be afraid of cotton. Like, cotton balls? Yep, afraid of cotton balls. So we had lunch at, at college and came to lunch and sat down at the table, and I had a cotton ball in my pocket because that's the type of guy I am, that somebody tells me they're afraid of cotton, and so we're going we're gonna to see this. So she's there, and I say, hey, I got something to show you. Yeah? And I take the cotton ball out and throw it on the table, and, and she, she flips out because she's afraid of cotton. I don't get it. It doesn't make sense. But apparently she was afraid of cotton. This is strange to me because it seems like a, a cotton ball should be, of all the things you could imagine, maybe one of the things that you should be least afraid of. Okay, that a cotton ball, uh, there's some things, some fears that do make sense because they can do you harm. But other things that I think just do not make sense to be afraid of. When we talk today, we're continuing our series on on fearing God and the fear of the Lord. And I think we realize that some fears don't make sense, but others do. And that is why to have a proper, the fear of the Lord is actually something that makes a lot of sense as we think about it. And today's message is that God is unsafe. When you think of all the things that God is, I don't know if this is what would come to mind, but I think when you think of Scripture and you let our thinking be biblically informed, we have to admit this is true, that God is unsafe. And I want to unpack this. I want to explain what it means and what I, what I don't mean by this. But in fact, I want to argue today that God is the most unsafe being in all existence. That's the main point of this message. God is the most unsafe being in existence, and that is why we should have a proper fear of him. So I want to make this clear, and I have an illustration that I want to use, and I'm going to say this, and I hope you write this down. I have this as the uh, first point, and it's really kind of an illustration that is going to introduce and cover the whole thing. So if you remember nothing else, I hope this sticks in your memory, but I want to say that God is more like a table saw than a cotton ball. God is more like a table saw than he is like a cotton ball. So let me explain. So cotton balls, cotton balls are pretty safe. In fact, like I said, if we're going to think of the uh, most safe things, cotton balls, you don't hear a lot of things about a tragic cotton ball accident. Okay, you don't hear stories of, hey, did you hear what happened to Elmer? Yeah, a cotton ball fell on his head. You don't hear these type of things. In fact, I'm going to demonstrate. If you're worried about me, okay, don't. Okay, look at cotton is, is hitting me on the head, and, and I'm okay. Okay, you really can't even hurt 
people with cotton, even if you were trying, okay? I can't stay here and just try to, to pelt people in the audience with, with cotton balls. And look, none of you are even ducking, okay? So Nathan, even I'm getting close, okay, I'm actually, I'm hitting him. Look, at, he's not even worried, okay? Just, so I, I'll, I'll tell you, professional assassins normally do not use cotton balls. It's not usually on their list. I'm trying to think, I don't even think you could take someone out with a cotton ball. Okay, I try to think, I mean, if you jammed it down their throat just right, maybe, but it's just not the weapon of choice that people use. Okay, and it really doesn't matter what you do. I mean, you could, you could you know, grab your cotton balls, you could you know, do whatever, and it's, it's not going to affect you. You don't have to worry about being in a wrong relationship with cotton balls. Okay, they're comforting, but you don't have to worry about them too much. Remember, our point here is that God is more like a table saw than a cotton ball. So we have cotton balls here, but we, here we have a table saw. Okay? And <laughs> danger, do not touch. All right. <laughs> That's just a suggestion, I'm sure. Okay. <laughs> let's, uh, let's watch the tie here. <laughs> yeah, we have it. This is a legit table saw that we have out here. And let me ask you, are table saws good or are they evil? Table saws are good, okay? And and let me just kind of prove that, that people pay money for table saws, okay? You don't have, you don't pay money to get your table saws exterminated, Okay, they're not like diseased rats carrying the plague, that we have like an infestation of table saws and we have to put out poison for them to get rid of them. People pay good money to have a table saw because they're useful and they're good. But they're not like cotton balls. You do not want to be in a wrong relationship with a table saw. A table saw is very good, but if you are in a wrong relationship with a table saw... It's going to be really bad. See what I'm saying? God is more like a table saw than he is like a cotton ball. And I just wonder, for many of us as Christians, do we have in our minds more of a cotton ball type of God or more of a table saw kind of God? And I think as we realize this, that because God is more like a table saw, you don't want to be in a wrong relationship with Him. He is good. There is no one that is more good than God. But to approach Him casually and carelessly in the wrong relationship, it will end up bad. So there is there, there's a proper fear of table saws. Now, when I say that, I don't want you to be up all night waking up in a, in a cold sweat because you're having nightmares about table saws. Okay, I don't want you to be so paranoid that you can't think about table saws, that you, you run away, that you, you cannot approach Lowe's or Home Depot because there might be table saws in there and you're paranoid about it. But there's a proper fear that you don't, you don't cuddle up this, you don't approach it in the wrong way. 
And you see how I think that's helpful for thinking about what it means to properly fear God? Now, we shouldn't have the type of fear that we just we run away, that we push him out of our mind, that people don't want to go near a church or anything to do with Christians because he reminds us of that which we're, we're paranoid about. But even as Christians, there's a proper fear and respect that we have for him. Hebrews 10.31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And if you read this paragraph in context, it's saying if you do not have a Savior, if you have rejected Jesus Christ and the blood that was shed for you on the cross, you are approaching something very dangerous with no safety mechanisms in place. How many of you here have ever read C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? I hope that you have. It's a classic book. I know some of the young people here, you may have you've read the or you've watched the movies instead. I I really suggest read read the books. Okay? And there's one part here that I want to talk about. They completely got it wrong in the movie. And it, it drove me crazy about this because it's so good in the book. But C.S. Lewis uh, was a Christian and he, he wrote these books. They are they're fantasy books. But he's trying to make Christian points through them. And in this series, there's a character named Aslan that's a lion, a mighty lion. And basically, he represents, very obviously, Jesus Christ and what he's like. Although in these books, he's a literal lion. So C.S. Lewis isn't saying that Jesus is literally a lion. The Bible does call him the lion of the tribe of Judah. But in these fictional books, this is how he represents him. And there's a part in here where uh, these, four, these children that go to Narnia, they're talking to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, because in Narnia, animals can talk. And I want to read you part of this discussion as they're finding out about Narnia and being told about Aslan the lion. And remember, this is really C.S. Lewis is trying to teach us about God. They say, you'll understand when you see him. But shall we see him? Ask Susan. Why, daughter of Eve, that's what I brought you here for. I'm to lead you to where you shall meet him, said Mr. Beaver. Is, is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan a man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And that you will, dearie. And no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they are either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. God is more like a table saw than he is like cotton balls. 
He is good. He is not safe. In fact, I want to convince you of what you should already know and you would from Scripture that God is the most unsafe being in existence. If you think of unsafe as having the power and ability to do great damage. See, cotton balls don't have a lot of potency to damage anyone. A table saw does when it's in the wrong relationship. Think of how much God has. And we're going to give three reasons. God is unsafe, the most unsafe being in existence. One, because of his infinite power. The more power that something has, the more potentially unsafe they are. The more powerful your table saw is, the more damage it can do. Here's just one example I want to look at. And there's so many we could look at, but this is from Mark chapter 4. So this is early in the gospel accounts, and this is Jesus, and he is calming a storm. Reading Mark chapter 4, verses 35. It says, On that day when evening had come, he said to them, to his disciples, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose. And the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And listen to what it says here. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him. So these disciples, they're out there and there's a storm. They think their ship is going to sink. It's taking on water. It is going to be going down. Why is Jesus sleeping? They wake him up. He rebukes the waves, instant calm. You would think, would their reaction be, they're just elated. Thank you, Jesus. This is so nice. Said they're filled with fear. Think about that. Why, why do you think that's the case? Why do you think after being rescued like this, they're filled with fear? Not, it seems that they're more filled with fear after this miracle than before it. It's because seeing Jesus do this, it made them realize how powerful he was. And power really makes someone dangerous, potentially. Think of how much power he had that he was able to calm a storm like this. I mean, think of it today. With all the technology that we have, one person cannot calm a storm. You know, this morning, as the wind's blowing and the rain's coming down and all of this is happening, as you're getting up and making the right decision to come to church today, you couldn't flip a switch. You couldn't do an app that turns off the rainstorm outside. We don't have machines that can do that. Not for an individual person, not everyone all collectively. Okay, the governments of the world cannot pool their resources to control the weather, even today. But Jesus spoke at it, and it instantly calmed down. 
She's just the, the snippet, the glimpse of his great power. And seeing that great power made them realize, this, this is someone to be feared. Because power can make someone dangerous. And, and more than that, they realized what hit them is that this is someone we cannot control. See, we want a God, as, as natural people, as sinners, we want a God that we can manage that we can control, that he's like a nice handy app for our life, that he can do what he wants to do. He's a nice tool that we can take out of the garage and we can use him when we need him and put him back when we don't. We can use him to manage our affairs, make our life easier. We want a God that, that we can manage and control, but we can't even control the weather. But he can do this, so we cannot control him. And you know, that miracle, that wasn't even a big deal for God. Just to do that. He was the God that created the seas. The God that created the oceans. And even creating the entire oceans is just a small thing for what his power could do. We cannot control that kind of power, and that is one reason that we, whether we're unbelievers or believers, there's either an unhealthy or a healthy type of fear that we should have realizing this. Another reason why he's the most unsafe being is because of his overwhelming glory. Next two passages are going to be from, from the book of Leviticus. So in the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. And the main thing we're going to be reading is from Leviticus chapter 9. But I want to give you some kind of a lead-up to this that I think makes this more impressive than I, if I just read this out of context. So if you've read through the Scriptures, and I, I really hope you do. If you haven't yet, I challenge you to make it a, a practice that you read through all of the Scriptures. I think a way that you can do that, this is a little side note, you could have your, your Bible and put a little check mark by each chapter when you do it and just keep going. If you've never done it before, you might want to do the New Testament first, then go back and do the Old, and then you could do the New Testament again. Just a little tip, I think that works well. For those of you that are students, I would make it your goal to have read through the entire Bible by the time you graduate. I think that's a really good thing. And one of the things you'll notice, there's going to be some parts where you get to Exodus and you get to Leviticus where you might be slowing down a little bit. Because there's these long sections where there's lengthy instructions. This, you read the beginning stories in Genesis. It's pretty exciting. You read the beginning part of Exodus, and you have Moses, and you have God leading the people out of Egypt and miracles and, and through the Red Sea, and they get the, uh, uh, the commandments. But then you have quite a bit in Exodus 25 through 30. It's these lengthy instructions for how to make all the items in the tabernacle. The ark, the curtains, all the furniture, lampstands, and it goes in all this detail. And you might think, well, this isn't that exciting to read, but if God put it there, it's for a purpose. And one of it, we can, we, it that's great is we know what this stuff looks like because it's recorded in Scripture. So, okay, it's great that we have this. You can, we don't have photographs of these things, and they no longer exist, so this is how we know precisely what it looks like. So you have six chapters of that. And then... In Exodus 37 through 40, though, then you'll hit a section where it talks about they've been given the instructions how to build it. 
And it says, and they set out and they built the ark and they built it exactly these dimensions and these dimensions. And it goes through all of the details again for, for many chapters. You know, and they uh, built the lampstand and they built it this high and they made it of this. And it's repeating all of the same material. And one time as I was reading through, it just it hit me, why, is God ha- why does he have it like this? Because I believe that the Bible is a completely inspired book, as I believe you should as well, and that everything in the Bible is there for a purpose. And it's not just because Moses decided to uh, be redundant and put all this stuff down. It's got to be there for a reason. But I thought, why could... Back then, you know, paper or papyrus was difficult to come by. You couldn't cut and paste. You couldn't just print these off. And so to have all these extra chapters that some scribe, and only a few people knew how to do this, had to take a long time to write all this out, you could have, in my thinking, you could have saved several chapters and a lot of work by just having a verse that says, and they built everything the way God told them to. Exactly. And we could have saved a lot of space. But God didn't do that. So why is that? I think the reason, and you get this more when you read through it, is that he's stressing that God is saying, if you want to come before me, I am a holy God. And I will not be approached just any old way. That for sinners to approach me, I will be the one to choose how you come into my presence. And I will give you instructions. And you will either choose to obey that or you will choose to disregard that to your peril. And so he gave them detailed instructions. And then it was important that it said they followed it to the letter. And they built all of this the way that they were supposed to. And it drove home that point. So then you get to Leviticus and you have first seven chapters giving detailed instructions about the offerings, the sacrifices they're supposed to do. And then in chapter 8 and 9, it gives detailed descriptions about consecrating the priests because not everyone could make these sacrifices. It had to be the priests and they had to be the right people from the right family doing it in the right way, the right protocol. And they had to be set apart in all of this. So you get the climax to all of this in this part that we're going to read in Leviticus 9. So after all of this preparation, finally they're going to put it together and they're going to make a sacrifice to God. And they're going to hope that this goes well and that he accepts the sacrifice. So with that in mind, let's read what he says here. Leviticus 9.22 Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. So you have the whole congregation of Israel. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. Now get this. Because before this is humans doing their, their thing that they were told to do. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offerings and the pieces of fat on the altar. So they see this, and all of a sudden there's brightness and light, and whatever this looked like, if it was like a a storm of of lightning and glory, it comes out, and fire comes out from this, supernaturally, and consumes the offering, fire from God, and the reaction of this. And it says, and when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. 
So notice those two things. They shouted. I think at first, they're, they're th- what is going to happen here? God manifests himself. And I think they were shouting just, they were, this was the most amazing, exciting thing they had seen. Fire is coming out from the Lord and consuming this. I'm like, this is amazing. Yes! And they're, they're praising and they're standing. And suddenly it realizes what is happening. This is a God that can produce lightning and fire and consume things. And they realize they went down on their faces in worship at this point. That they were amazed and overwhelmed with God's glory. And it drove them to their knees. No one was bored. No one was treating God casually. They were overwhelmed by His glory, by the manifestation of His presence. And then God is unsafe also because of His perfect holiness. That He is, he is set apart. He is not to be approached by, by sin. He is set apart from that. And He is holy and He demands that we treat Him as holy. Now look at this. Keep going. Leviticus chapter 10. Chapter divisions added later. Get this. This is the very next thing that happens. So they have this amazing thing. Fire of the Lord. They're falling on their faces. The very next time that they go to worship, that's recorded. It says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, so they're the priests, each took a censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So my translation says unauthorized fire. Some say strange fire. Because they were told exactly what they were supposed to do. And it was an amazing thing. And look at the second time out, recorded, they decide, well, let's improvise. Let's do our own thing. What could go wrong? Maybe we can improve. Authored unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them, Verse 2, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron, the father of these two, held his peace. Imagine that situation. Imagine being there like this. Being Aaron, you have your sons and all this preparation, and then they're struck down. First offense. But think of also what they were doing. Just chapter upon chapter upon chapter, detailed instructions about how God is supposed to be approached in a carefully prescribed manner that there's only one way to come before the Lord. And the next time out, Nadab and Abihu think that it's okay to just do worship freestyle. They think they can approach him just any way they want. Can we approach God any way we want? Are there many, many ways to God? Any way is safe? Who gets to decide how God is to be approached? Can we take a vote? Put together a committee? God is the one who decides. 
God is not safe, but he is good. Moses and the people came out of Egypt and there's a song in Exodus 15, Moses and the people, they sing. Let me turn to that and read it to you. And just think of here the goodness of God in rescuing his people and his loving kindness. But think of how unsafe he is to the, to the enemies. Then Moses and the people of the Lord sang the song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed graciously. The horse and the rider of the Egyptians, he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. Verse 3, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts were cast into the sea. And his chosen officers were sunk into the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill on them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. And you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength, your holy abode. The people have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread falls upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Later on in Exodus 33, Moses asked to see God's glory, and he says, you can't. But he says to him, and he said, I will make my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see my face and live. For sinful people, finite sinful people like we are, we cannot see God in his glory and holiness and survive. So how can sinners stand before God at all? How can we come before him to worship him? Any way that we want? Is there a way at all? Is there any way? Jesus said to them, 
I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There are not multiple options. There are not multiple ways. God is not like a a cotton ball that it doesn't matter how we try to approach him. We come before him the way that he prescribes through the love of Jesus Christ who came to this world and died on the cross for sinners like you and me. And through that way, we can approach him clothed in his righteousness with our, with our sins paid for because of what he did for us on the cross. And apart from that, we will all approach him one day. We will stand before the throne. But it will not be to approach him in a way that you will want to approach him. Come to God through Jesus Christ. I plead with you. Submit to him. Stop your rebellion. Change your mind. Change your heart. Change your will. Come to him as your Lord and your Savior, taking refuge in him and fearing him with a proper good fear. He is ready to receive you. He has already done everything that is needed. He has already paid the price in full. But you need to receive the gift and you need to come. Approach him through Christ. For all of us, never take God lightly. And let us all learn to walk in the proper fear of the Lord. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Let's pray. Mighty Holy God, we have no right on our own to come into your presence at all. And without Jesus, the only coming into your presence would be to come for judgment and a horrible future that we would not want. We thank you that you did not have to provide even one way, but you have provided us a way, the way that cost you more than anything, that cost Jesus Christ dying on the cross in our place. And we thank you that because of that great love and the sacrifice that you made for us, that you made for sinners, that we can freely come to you. And Lord, I pray for anyone here that has not trusted you as Savior that is still in a bad relationship with one that is more dangerous and powerful than than a table saw, that they would repent, that they would turn, that they would come to you through Jesus Christ. And for all of us that have come through that one way, we give you our praise. Help us to come before you, but never to forget who you are. And we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are a God to be feared and that you are good. Thank you for the goodness you give to us through Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.